stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, the Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Today's guest is a former guest of the show with his book behind us on the shelf there where others won't. He's here today to discuss his latest book, which is a cracking read. It is about coaching, sports coaching, but it can be applicable to any aspect of being a leader. He is the author of Tough Stuff, The Seven Hard Truths About Being a Head Coach. He is Cody Royal. Welcome to our studio, Cody. Hayden, thanks for having me. How good is this to be back together again? It's great to have you in studio. Great to have in iconic studios here in Dublin. Cody was just complimenting us on the, the setup here. It's all hacked together, man. It was way worse. So uh, we're getting into a good place. But let's get into the book because we have limited time. Cody's on a, on a book tour, essentially, uh, doing a few interviews around Dublin. I wanted to just jump into, firstly, why you're in Dublin, which is a great reason, which is to celebrate the bringing your new son into the world, Olivier. Yeah, yeah. So we're very fortunate in that we get to have a period of time on parental leave. Uh, so my wife and I are over with family and uh, aunts and uncles and in-laws and everyone around uh, Ollie. So, uh, yeah, kind of an introduction, but kind of not. It's, it's a bit, bit yeah. weird these days, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great that you're, we're in person as well. And actually, you know, we were talking, Cody has his own fantastic podcast, Where There's Won't, which is the title of his first book as well. And I was thinking about that, that. Being able to do stuff in person is such a different dynamic and something that, because we kind of evolved on our podcasts uh, together, really. And uh, it's been so brilliant just being able to do video and then actually been doing it in person as well. So it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Speaking of which, let's talk about the origin of the tough stuff. Because when we first met, you, you had just written Where There's Won't. You didn't have any concept of a second book, but it emerged for you, particularly after a keynote you were giving in Vegas. Vegas. And, and luckily, what, what Cody, Cody did in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you hit the nail on the head at the top of the show there. It's a book about the lived experience of the ultimate position, being in the spotlight. So in my world and your previous world, that's a head coach. It could be applicable to a CEO or a president or uh, someone uh, in the government or military. It's really when you feel the, the weight of, of expectations from, from everyone that's kind of underneath you. So, yeah, I, I gave this presentation in, in Las Vegas and I was asked to talk about talent development and I talked about coach development. And uh, I, I challenged people in the room to think about their own performance. So, you know, we, we say in coaching, you know, how it, to the players, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Uh, you know, is your family healthy? Are you, uh, you know, are you seeing the, the psychologist? Are you going and kind of getting rid of the, um, the, the things that you need to get rid of so you can perform on Saturday? And then the coaches do none of that. And so I challenged everyone in the room to look after themselves and to think about those performance elements for themselves. And yeah, ultimately that was the catalyst for, for the tough stuff. One of the things Cody says in the book is when you said that firstly, there's a silence and you weren't that popular as a result, but then gradually more and more people came forward and kind of gone, Hey man, all the stuff you were talking about there, that's happened to me. I'm experiencing it. And this avalanche and snowballed into actually becoming the book. 
I think I wasn't popular, one, because of the message, and two, because the guy after me was like Jester from Top Gun, <laughs> like the guy that trains all the fighter pilots. So I think they were more so looking forward to him. You were like Goose. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm sure I was called a Goose that day as well. But uh, no, it's been fascinating since writing the book and even just on social media, people DM me and they're like, man, the first time that I saw you was was at Leaders in Sport in Vegas. And, and I had no idea these people were even in the room and so like they said oh what you wrote that uh, what you said that day really captured me and then you've written more about it and I followed your journey and so it's been really cool to kind of reconnect those dots backwards as Steve Jobs puts it yeah uh, with those people that were actually in the room and just want to say for anybody listening who's kind of going oh this is going to be about sport it's absolutely not about sport it's about you as a leader of yourself because it digs into as Cody alluded to their sleep rest even alcoholism turn into, you know, comforts such as alcohol for getting through the tough stuff. And there's a reason it's called the tough stuff because there's seven questions and we're going to hopefully get through them all because Cody's under a bit of time pressure today. But let's talk about why it's the tough stuff because this is about really looking yourself in the mirror and asking some tough questions. You know, this is the stuff that is really easy to just push to the side. And so we're talking about, you know, the emotional toll of being in a in a position of leadership and often what people say is that you know there's a there's a bit of a weight of expectations but really leaders have the highest expectations of themselves anyway and so part of it is just a plea for us as leaders whether that's in sport business whatever your domain to acknowledge that and say yeah we are under some emotional strain and so let's take the lessons that we already know about performance and apply them to ourselves. One of the things that came to mind, so it, it brought back memories of firstly being a player, um, and then one thing that dawned on me at the end of my career, so I, at the end of my career, I was a player coach. I never went head coach, full head coach. And when I was player coach, I it dawned on me, I was like, going, wow, I wish I knew the stuff I knew now, what it's like to be a coach as a player. And, and I thought it was really interesting for players to read this book to go, because if you think about leaders in companies, it's the same thing, people kind of expect them to be superhuman, and they forget they're actually human, they've got problems, they've got challenges, they've got families, they're uprooting their family, bringing them around the world the whole time, etc. But back to that moment of being a player coach, the big difficulty for me was I retired from professional sport, mainly because I was injured all the time. And when I went to be a player coach, then I felt kind of embarrassed because I couldn't lead by example the way I used to because I was hobbling around the pitch. I was kind of held together with sellotape and I used to come in the morning and just to put it in context, it was 08, it was 2008. I was an intern. I was 31. I was on 18 grand. So I was starting from scratch. I had a really hefty mortgage after that I could unfortunately have afforded because of being a player. And now the house was worth half what it was worth. I had a kid on the way. I was broken physically. And I was going into the gym every morning at 5am to just do prehab. So I'd be able to just be able to get through the games. So I remember a moment of that looking in the mirror and kind of going, what do I, what can I do? And I was like, well, I can lead from ex by example through the prehabilitation, uh, the diet, uh, the sleep as much as possible when my son came along. You know what that's like now. But I was like, I can control the controllables. And this is one of the messages of the book here is that the, the age of leadership of 
do as I say, not as I do, has to be over. We're seeing a, a, an outro of that period of life. And this is one of the huge messages of the book. Yeah, you're right. It's gone. Uh, it's got to be lead by example now. And, you know, I think this is part of the reason we're seeing in the corporate world, especially, you know, we're talking about the great resignation. And I think that is part of the people telling us as leaders that they want us to live the values that, you know, we, we spend all this time in our boardrooms and we come up with, and we do these polls and we come up with our values and our culture and all these sort of things. And, and still leaders aren't exactly living what they're saying to the rest of the people. And, and I think part of what we're seeing is a reaction to that and say, well, if you're not going to live it like you say you're living it, then I'm out. And uh, it's certainly the case in sport as well. We were talking about Cody's writing style, which I really love. It, it reminds me of many of the academics, the way they write. I mentioned, for example, Francesca Gino's book up there, Rebel Talent, which is a great read. I said it to you and you're like, oh, yeah, well, that's a huge compliment. It is very like that because just like her, when she had researchers helping her, obviously, for that book, which is great read. It's a former, she's a former guest on the show as well. But you did the research yourself through your podcast. So I mentioned how many coaches came forward and went, I experienced that, man. That's exactly what happened to me. And uh, male and female. So you went across the full spectrum as well. In fact, the spectrum of sports as well, which is important to say. But they all, the seven truths, resonated with people. And the one that most people will probably understand the most from the other side, so think about leaders here in organizations, is everybody thinks you're an idiot. So you're always doing something wrong by somebody. Somebody's always feeling let down or hard done by. I've been that soldier as well, thinking the coach was an idiot. And you say here, head coaching isn't what you expect. When you're the one in the spotlight, every word will be scrutinized. Every decision will be dissected and every accomplishment will be questioned. And often some of your harshest critics work alongside you. So it's not just the players. It's not just the employees. Sometimes it's your executive team. Sometimes it's your co-coaches. Sometimes it's the physio. Sometimes it's the strength and conditioning coach. And sometimes they're all out to get you and you don't even know why. And this can be very challenging. And this is what you call the weight as well, the weight on a coach. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, when my editor saw that line, so everyone thinks you're an idiot was actually just going to be a passage in the book. And when he saw that, he's like, that's got to be the first chapter. So it is the first chapter. And and it, it's funny how many people message that to me. Again, you know, send DMs and things about uh, everyone thinking they're an idiot. But yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those things that is just unexpected. You know, I, I open with stories of people like Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard, and they're talking about these things because, you know, now they're being interviewed about what was it like going from, you know, in Lampard's uh, experiences, watching his dad go through it and as a player and then him going through it as a player and then you end up as a coach. And all of a sudden, the Frank Lampard that we knew as a player is now a coach and he's been questioned every decision, every substitution, every selection, every deselection, every, and, and they've all struggled with it. They didn't anticipate that as part of it. And the other, the other thing that um, there's a personal experience in that chapter about going to visit a club at, at training and the physio just coming up next to me, introducing themselves and then just 
word vomiting everything they disliked about the head coach. The head coach was the one that had invited me there to watch. And without even knowing who I was, what I was doing there, just here's all the things that I don't like. And it's a work colleague. And you would never do that about someone else in the, the work environment. But for whatever reason, people think that the top leader, the, the head coach, the CEO is fair game for that type of thing. And yeah, very bizarre dynamic, but, and one we probably can't stop, but one that you can be aware of when you walk into the job. One of the reasons I kind of stepped away from coaching was the difficulty in uprooting your family. I, I could foresee that. I was like kind of going, wow, like a, a coach. Firstly, you've kind of got a lifespan. You have a limited lifespan, except I, I don't, you know, in the NFL, for example, it doesn't seem to be the case, but uh, certainly in rugby, when you have a coach, they don't really last that long because the voice kind of fades into being noise rather than signal. And then you have to uproot your family and move around, etc, etc. You talked about Andy Friend, for example, the former Connick coach, or is he still a Connick coach? Yeah. Still Connick coach. That's how out of rugby I am these days. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. And uh, I, I found that really interesting that that, you know, because we, we perceive that they're being really well paid, it becomes their fair game, because they're all their stuff happens in public, including the failures, which is difficult also for a player. But I wanted to bring it back to the book because I pulled a little excerpt here. Former NFL executive Michael Lombardi once told you something profound in one of the interviews. He said, new coaches need to spend more time understanding why there was a job vacancy in the first place, because that resonates for so many of our listeners, because oftentimes when there's a job of head of innovation or head of change or transformation, we don't figure out why. I certainly made that mistake in the past as well. And you pay the price for that because yeah. you're kind of going, they don't need a head of innovation. Or maybe the head of innovation is a bit lipstick on a pig. It's a fake role to, that's the innovation project is actually just say we have a head of innovation. And you said here, what he means is that too many coaches jump right into a new job without taking time to truly comprehend the problem they're solving. That is such an, a profound line that goes right to the depth of what we experience in as executives and change, but also as CEOs or leaders in any aspect. Yeah, I mean, in, in head coaching, the one thing that you can bank on is you know that that role uh, was filled previously. So it's an easy question. It's why did the last person fail? And really what you're looking for is a robust answer to that. So during the interview process, like any job interview process, everyone's on their first date behavior. So, you know, everyone's had a great upbringing, they've, <laughs> you know, um, they've got a great job and, and everything's great and, and that's fantastic. But then when you dig underneath, you can end up spending years trying to unpack why it is that the last person failed and, and get through all of that. And I think we can, as coaches, as leaders, uh, get to that faster by having that be the first mission is why really when everyone's not in their interview mode and, and just selling the, the best parts about the role, why does the role exist or why did the last person fail at it? And let's go and address those things and make sure structurally we're fixing that first because then, as you know, it's, it's a little bit smoother sailing. It might not be smooth sailing, but a little bit smoother. It's a difficult one, man. I, I thought about that one most out of everything and I was like, like for me, certainly when, when the head of innovation role came along, I was so excited by it. It was a good brand. 
all these things worked and I was like kind of going, oh, this looks great. And it'd be stupid to turn it down and to actually dig a little bit deeper, even though the gut feeling was there that yeah, I don't know about this, but you're like, shut up, gut, <laughs> I want this. And, and any time I've ever done that in life, I don't know about you, it's always come back to bite me in the ass. Yeah. Yeah, I used to work in recruiting and one of the things that I would ask people as soon as they got into the elevator bay after their interview was like, what did your gut say? Because people have a really strong intuition as to uh, those type of things. And so I was really interested to to hear people's initial reactions to you know, once they'd walked out of there because you, you do kind of know. So we're moving on to question two here, which is the question you ask yourself and you got to look in the mirror, which is your fiercest rival is yourself. So you say here, your toughest battles aren't with worthy opponents on the field of play. Your ability to navigate the emotional toll of being a head coach will define your legacy more than wins and losses. That is pretty profound. You say, former Carlton Blues head coach Brendan Bolton points out, some of the issues is that the AFL, so Australian Football League, coaches have got 50 players that they treat like sons. And this is really key, I think, and this is the key for people when you're having empathy towards a leader in an organization. On top of those executives or coaches or players, they've got 15 coaches that they're really invested in. On top of that, they've got their own family and their own friends and their own life. And it's a huge burden on people. And if you're an empathetic leader, we were talking about this before. If you're empathetic on top of that, it really draws on your energy and it leaves you absolutely exhausted at the end of the day. And then you turn to other substances sometimes as a way to cope with all this. Yeah, exactly. This was probably the thing that tipped me over the edge in terms of writing this book. So yes, the the Vegas presentation, kind of the, the formative idea. But when COVID hit, like, I don't know if you remember, but those first couple of months, we were talking about leagues folding in sports. And so... Every head coach was sitting in their back garden thinking, shit, I have invested my life into this and my club might fold, the league might fold, we might be done and, and I don't have anything else and I don't know what to do. Plus, I've got 100 people that I care about like children. And so when I started calling around and seeing what my, my friends and other coaches were, were going through, it was this like emotional toll. And that's why I talk about like the weight of caring about people if you are empathetic. And I think it goes massively overlooked that that is constantly going through the minds. That's what coaches are up thinking about at 3 a.m. It's not strategy and game plans and whether to, you know, this X or this O go in this direction. It's how my people doing? Have I prepared my people for what they need to do? Because I give a shit. And again, I, I, I think it's a massive miss for us to, to overlook that as leaders because they have no support mechanism to help deal with that. We were talking about this before we came on air because I, I was saying about the, the, parable, the parallels between this and being a leader in an organization in that sometimes say I'm head coach and I know I get on well with Cody's he's on my coaching staff but I can't confide in you because I'm going that's a weakness if I tell him I'm struggling here it's a weakness so it becomes a really lonely place and as you say Eddie Jones who's now the coach of the English rugby team but he was coach of both Japan and Australia in the past he said like 
it's the most loneliest role in the world. Yeah, uh, you know, Eddie's autobiography was was really uh, central to to me writing this passage in particular because it's three pages in to his autobiography where he's talking about loneliness. This is someone who's been to the World Cup final three times, coached Japan to beat South Africa. Like it should be about awards and winning and all these great stories, going to the bar and rugby and blah, blah, blah. Three pages into his autobiography, he's talking about loneliness. And and what he says is when he got the Australia job, which was he's an Aussie kid, you know, and it was his dream job. He's like, my predecessor said to me, you're now the loneliest man in Australia. And think about, you've just got your dream job and the person that's doing the job, has just finished doing the job is like, yeah, good for you, (laughs) but you're now the loneliest man in Australia. You've got no one to turn to. Poison chalice. Yeah. And speaking of poison chalice, this is one of the ways you cope because you bravely talk about this. So many, many coaches and many leaders, and I'm sure some of our listeners, because of just the odds of the numbers here, one of the things you do is turn to substance abuse. And many people did this during COVID. They turned to alcohol or food as a way to comfort themselves and get through it all. And that led to being problematic. And it became difficult to come out of that afterwards. Many coaches go through this, like you kind of mentioned this at the start where you were like, the coaches like, don't drink, you got to look your body's a temple, etc. And then like, drink themselves to sleep at night with a bottle or two of wine or a few beers or whatever. This is very prevalent. And it's also prevalent for many executives who work in organizations that are psychologically unsafe, or they're under huge amount of pressure, and they need to find a way out and oftentimes don't have the support network. And this is a huge part of your work itself. But let's Let's talk about the alcohol because that is a, almost a taboo subject that we need to talk about. Yeah, we do. And, and that's the thing is when, it, when you're writing about emotional topics like this, you know, obviously we've been talking about other people's anecdotes and examples and lived experience, but mine are in there too. And, and this is a big one for me has been, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a battle with alcohol, but, but I've certainly abused alcohol. I was raised in Australia. I was raised to you know, uh, every barbecue, every post game at football, our whole livelihoods kind of evolved around that. And, and I struggled with believing that my friends didn't actually like my company unless I was buzzed. And so, and, and that manifested even more and more as more stressors started to come onto me as, as I was coaching. So, you know, pre-game, for instance, where you are worried about preparing your team, there's no way I was getting to sleep. And, and I've spoken to coaches the world over and probably the, the thing that people have messaged me the most about and sent emails is alcohol and struggling to get off using it to, to even get to sleep. Wow. And, and you think about the slippery slope of that is then the, the players know they see your eyes, they smell you when you come into the facility the next morning or your staff know when you slink into the office or the boardroom, but you can't get out of the, the cycle. And so, yeah, it's, it's something that, that I've struggled with and, and been able to reform my habits on after some work during COVID, you know, working with a therapist. And, uh, yeah, I would encourage people if it, if it is a struggle for you to, to think about getting some help even as an accountability partner, have someone help you through the process, um, even if it is just to reduce the amount of alcohol, not necessarily quit. I was thinking about my children 
So I was thinking, for example, my son got an Oculus. So uh, we had the confirmation here in Ireland, and he got his confirmation money. He bought an Oculus. He wanted to buy an Oculus. And he loves it. But we give him a limited amount of time any, anyway, because you can only your brain can only handle the amount and you kind of feel sick, etc. But I was I was telling him the other day, and this is probably way too much for a kid to comprehend. He's 12. I was like, kind of going, if you get too addicted to anything, whether it be computers or watching TV, whatever it might be, th those habits can be transferable to other things in life, because you create this kind of circuit of habit tree, yeah. you know, and, and the habits actually habits are good as well, you can use the good habits. So I'm trying to instill habits of uh, doing a little bit of exercise, drinking water, all those kind of things that are really useful in kids. But this chapter really, really sparked a lot of those things for me. But uh, I'm really thanks for thanks for addressing it. Thanks for addressing it in the book, because I, I do know, as an executive coach that many, many people at the top are struggling in the same way. And this is the way to try to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it might not be it might not just be alcohol, it might be food as well. So yeah. it's a, it's another thing. It can be shopping, can be a whole range of different things. There's good news of this as well. And I, I wanted to draw on our friend Andy Friend as well. Connor Coach, not, not former. We don't know anything you don't know, Andy, just to be clear. But uh, the reason I, I say this is he said something that was really important, which is, and I, I've again, I've I've struggled in this where you're so involved in your job and you think it's everything it's your world and you think everything revolves around that job but it's a tiny little bubble and a tiny pale blue dot in the universe it do it doesn't really matter at the end of the day yes it matters for paying your mortgage and all those things and it's it's disruptive if you lose your job or anything like that but andy talked about you know, the pressures from media, everybody knows him, it's oh, there's kind of coach nudging each other, he can't go for a coffee, etc. I'm elaborating here a bit. But then he goes to somewhere at a different part of the world. Nobody not nobody knows him. But more than that, nobody cares who he is. And there's some comfort in that, because it really doesn't matter. Like, and you know, from even doing the podcast, Many people who approach me about writing or podcasts will say, oh, you know, what will they think? And I'm going, who's they? And they're kind of going, people. And I'm going, like, are you really going to let your dreams be dictated by people you don't even know? And, and the answer is usually yes for so many people, the fear of that. And I just thought that was such a liberating part about when you move outside your bubble, nobody really cares. Yeah. And hey, I've walked around Galway with Andy. You know, I've been over to his house and, and spent some time with him and Kez. And, and yeah, we walked around trying to get a coffee and a bite to eat. And, you know, we stopped every five yards for someone to have a chat about what was going on on the weekend. Or, um, and so, yeah, it, it does become consuming. But then, you know, there are opportunities to reframe that really and that's the identity piece you know I, I spent quite a bit of time in the book talking about identity and like who you are and who you associate with and I think that really ties into it is does this matter yeah. and, and does this matter to me and my being or is this for other people and if it is for other people maybe that's okay but yeah I think it's worthwhile particularly as leaders going through even as a project to, to identify that like who is this for who am I um, if I move around the world is it still the same uh, it's, it's a great segue for the next one so point three or question three is 
is that you don't possess the God particle. And here you say the great paradox of coaching is that it is both not about you and entirely about you. Yeah. So let's unpack that one. Yeah, so I I really dislike the whole phrasing around, you know, leadership isn't about you because it absolutely is. Uh, you know, they've, they've studied in, in multitudes of different ways, you know, contagion theory. And, you know, we, we know in the workplace, you know, there's the, the, the studies around sitting within 10 yards of a high performer makes everyone around them a high performer. And then similarly, a low performer makes, drags everyone else back down. They've studied, you know, what leaders do to people and high performing leaders. And so it is absolutely about you. So I think what we get wrong is we just say, uh, ego, we bundle it into ego. It's not about you. But ultimately, your behaviors dictate the behaviors of, of your team members. Your performance dictates the behaviors of, of your team members. And so, uh, again, it's, this is a bit of a call to action to maybe reframe that and say, well, it's not about you ultimately. It's about the team and getting them to perform at a high level. But how you do that is you pay attention to yourself and your behaviors and your performance, knowing that they're going to, to copy you. And one of the other things that happens is, like you mentioned, Andy, for example, so your ego can get ahead of you sometimes as a coach. So the media, everyone wants to know you, particularly if you're a winning coach. Um, and you can just like what happens as an executive, like I mentioned there, you think the world revolves around this persona that you have, which isn't really you if you peel away, it's like you're playing a role here. The coach is also a role and you say, number four is you're not a coach don't over identify with this it's a role you're sitting in for a period of time and you will have to hand that baton on to somebody else so this is a really important aspect again goes right into the workplace as well yeah yeah you're not a coach you're a person who coaches and this is another thing that a lot of coaches struggle with is they identify themselves with coaches i've had people introduce themselves by what level of coaching badge or accreditation they have before they even tell me their name that's troubling you know so you're aiden and i'm cody and we we do certain things with our time but you're aiden and i'm cody and so you know again it's a it's a slippery slope in leadership of, of becoming a ceo you're a person who is a ceo and probably the the most interesting anecdote that that i found in there was in the netflix documentary the the playbook they have jill ellis who coached uh, team usa to two world cups in in women's soccer she talks about how uh, despite that you would think that achievement would be the her crowning glory she sits there and says no it was actually coming out as gay to my uh university team when i was coaching ucla being able to stand there and realize that I can be a strong woman, a strong female leader and be gay and still have a job mm -hmm. and still be a coach was the most liberating thing in my life. And this is someone who's won two World Cups. <laughs> so you would immediately say that defines her. And she says, no, being myself is what defines me. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us. It resonated in um, one of the great experiences. Actually, it was my first in-person interview was with the great Charles Handy. And his late wife did, did this amazing thing where she was a photographer. 
and she she defined herself as follows so she's like first i'm a mother and a wife then i'm a photographer and then i work with you charles right so this is her her she, she almost was structuring them and she did this amazing thing it was called the new alchemist it's a it's a book where she she took photographs of executives and she got them to dress in the different personas that they were so some people would put the person forward that was you know in the exact suit put that forward then it would be like baking a cake or it might be something different so it was how they structured themselves and it always stuck with me that that visual aspect because this is what happens when you who do you put forward who is you who's really you and this chapter really digs into that because it, it really is and it, it took me a really a while to realize you know i'm still working on it as we all do who i am and not be wearing this mask because the the word persona comes from this greek term for mask and the mask it was the masks actors wore as they wore played different personas so it was this was the days when women couldn't act or uh, so that you'd play multiple roles and you'd put on different personas for their roles different masks right. and one of the things that happened in toulouse and you talk about here so in my experience playing for toulouse the coaches said to me, we hired you to be you because at the start when we were training, I was trying to emulate the way the club played and they're like kind of going, just do what you do. And I was like kind of going, well, we'll need to fit into the style. And they're like kind of going, no, we hired you to be you. And this is something you say here. And this really resonated with me. It was like, you have to be yourself because the, the weight of everything else is so heavy that if you're wearing a mask as well, that weight is going to just be overbearing and it's going to cripple you. Yeah, I, I'll give you a little bit of a view into kind of the book that I'm writing now. I've always got a book on the go, Aiden, you know that. But, but I, I, part of it is, is that. And, you know, they hired you for you. And it's remarkable when you dig in through all the autobiographies of all the great coaches, for, you know, we're, we're great uh, now in that we have... Carlo Ancelotti, Arsene Wenger, Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, all these and podcasts have now opened up th these these worlds for us to get inside the the heads of all these coaches. To a person, each one of them always say, if there's one, if they get asked if there's one lesson that you want to pass on to the next generation of coaches, what would it be? To a person, they say, be yourself. You have to find yourself. Don't copy anyone else. You can steal little bits from your predecessors. And, and I think we really need to pay attention to that. You know, our, our forefathers are telling us, they're giving us the goal. Be yourself. Find yourself. Understand what you really believe in as a leader and be that. And uh, I think we, we tend to gloss over that so quickly. But the people that are doing the job right now are saying, on mass, they're saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So let's listen. You talk in this chapter as well about uh, psychometric profiling, for example. Mm -hmm. Some players have had that done. You've had that done. You've had work done on that because part of that understanding yourself is what are my values, all that type of value work for yourself. Like what, what, what do you want to be known as? But you do mention, and I'm, I've kind of, I've certainly got mixed um, feelings about 360s, you know, when so it's like, yeah. I ask everybody else, what's Cody like? And then we, then I, as the executive coach go, ta-da, here you go. And it's like, they all slate you. 
that can be very damaging for somebody because they think in their world they've built this world where everything's going well and then all of a sudden that just comes crumbling down and you can see it sometimes it can be very damaging but you say it's been helpful for you and it can be also very very helpful for many coaches and leaders because I find this oftentimes when a when a leader in an organization sometimes they'll come forward to me as an exec coach and they're gonna go my business wants me to get or my business thinks I should get some coaching and they think that's a failure and I'm gonna go congratulations they obviously believe in you yeah yeah and and because we see it as a weakness but like everybody needs a coach yeah they do and yeah what I say in there and this is true of my experience i've done a fair few of them you know i get pitched them now as a coach because people want their their test to be used on other coaches but i've probably gone through a couple and i share actually the takeaways of my own profile in the book really what it did for me is just validate what i thought my strengths were and that that comes out in whatever way of moving the dots around or moving the colors around the the psychometric profile wants to do and and it really revalidated for me these are my strengths and revalidated these are the things that i'm not strong at but that then allowed me to reconfigure my work days and my workflow and give certain things to my assistant coaches, for instance, that I wasn't strong at. So I'm not a detailed person. So, you know, if I'm working with detailed people, they're better at those kinds of jobs, but I also need to interact with them differently. One of the things you say, for example, was you, if you'd lost over details, you'd have the psychological safety in the team for people to call that out and kind of go, Cody, I missed that. And you kind of go, okay, and you really encouraged that. I thought that was a really important aspect. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the other benefit as well, is it, it levels the, 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 the playing field in terms of the dialogue internally amongst your team. So if you open up your own profile to others on, on your team and say, this is me, so you interact with me this way, knowing these things about me and vice versa, your accountability goes through the roof if you're open to it yeah. as a leader <laughs> that's the big challenge and uh, the next one is actually speaks to the very heart of why i do this show which is try and bring information that may not be widely available so people can make sound decisions and the reason why is because we're in the knowledge economy we're about maximizing our brain you know you make more money from your brain than you do from your body you can't you can't get the hours of the day out of yourself now, in the field of coaching and w with athletes, you would think it's about the body and the, the limits of human potential from a body perspective. But the coach is different and actually the players, too. It's about your decision making, those decisions that you need to make in high pressure environments, in high pressure moments, etc. But many of us, as we talked about earlier on from an alcohol perspective, but we burn the midnight oil. We forget that, as you say, point five is you're hired for your brain. That's why you're hired. So you should actually maximize that. And that includes diet, sleep, etc. Yeah, exactly. As coaches, we're high performance knowledge workers uh, is the way that I describe us. So if you think about traditional knowledge work, your marketer, your accountant, your, your kind of office worker, we go to the next level in that the decisions that we're making play out in real time in the public domain and have real world consequences to a whole range of different factors. 
And so that added pressure then really heightens the, the reason to take care of our brains. Because again, we as human performance experts know the impact of poor sleep, poor nutrition. Uh, we know the impact on awareness. Our job as coaches is, is to notice things, notice small details about a movement of a player or, or a change in play. Communication declines when you're in a state of depletion dr- drastically, right? Uh, and, and decision-making declines. And, and awareness, communication, decision-making, three pretty primary skills for a coach or any leader and so if we're not taking care of our, our brains, then how do you expect to make solid decisions? And th- the example I think that sticks out in this one is the military, mm. who is who we look to for the latest science in these things. The US military, they have changed their guidebooks. They, they now talk about sleep as a, a defining factor in their preparation. They outline when to nap, how long to nap for, they give license for their soldiers to nap. It's it's no longer this, you have to stay awake for 30 hours, you know, otherwise you're not hard enough. Yeah. No, protect your brain at all costs and here's how to do it. And, and again, there's a lesson there for us. We think we're following the military in, in a lot of things, but they've moved. And so sport needs to move and business certainly needs to move as well. Yeah, we were, we were talking about this about the the like I'm in the iconic offices here in Dublin, and there's these type of offices are actually great for the flexibility because you you don't want to always be in the office, etc. Yeah. And one of the things I I thought about was this idea of presenteeism is that if they're not in the office, they're not working. Yeah. But many people I've talked to were like, well, the commute for me was the piece I hated the most. The commute killed me time I get in then I need a coffee to almost recover from the commute and if you think about the it's a limited resource the energy in the morning and if you can harness that early and you don't have to do the commute and you get energy from say dropping your kids to school for example it's energizing and you can harness that energy and put it into knowledge work but I, I it made me think about uh, about the mistakes I've made in the past. So when I was doing this show and before when I was doing it originally, as you know, I was I was working as an executive. I wasn't working for myself. Yeah. I was working in an organization. So I had to squeeze it in at places like nighttime. And I'd stay up sometimes two to three in the morning writing my weekly blog or editing the show, etc. And doing knowledge work at that type of night. Now, some people will go, oh, I, that's when I come to life. And I go, I used to think that as well. But because of COVID and because of that time, it made me reassess everything. So I started to prioritize stuff like, you know, uh, being going to bed early, reading in bed for a few minutes, which would inevitably make me go to sleep. But then I'd be up earlier and I'd be more energetic in the morning. So it just reshuffled things and recalibrated. And even stuff like I do the keto diet, I do intermittent fasting and those type of things. And you see a lot with podcasters and people think it's a, a podcaster kind of, you know, you probably get this. You, it's like, you know, it's in, it's a fad or it's a fat in fashion. For me, it's about how it makes me think. I yeah. think better, yeah. and it probably gets me into alpha wave state better and all those kind of things. But also, as you talk about here, mindfulness, gratitude, all that is included in that package. I, I see all those. They do all those things, 
but I do them because it makes me a better thinker, it makes me a better reader, it makes me more coherent, I hope, <laughs> as well. So all those things, they, they have such a dramatic impact. And it's why I'm so passionate about this aspect. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, it's a, it's a great exercise to go through in terms of just paying attention to when you do feel like you have mental capacity. And for most of us, it's in the morning. It might not be everyone. Um, and then another thing, what I've been doing personally is I've been reframing exercise as energy giving. You know how you, you kind of get to five o'clock and like, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm already tired. That's what, that's what you think. I'm already tired. So why would I continue to make myself tired? It's actually the other way around. So when you start to reframe exercise, going for a quick run as energy giving, and you're going to have a, a burst on the other side of the, the exercise, now all of a sudden you're in your gym shorts already because right? you're looking forward to it. And so there's kind of some, some mental reframing that we can do to help with the, the, the exercise, the mindfulness, the reflection that we need to do as well. One of the things you talked about in the book as well was the coaches training with the, with the strength and conditioning coaches. Like, I mean, you have no excuse. You have like the best people in the world about yeah. physical conditioning and you're like going to use them, chief. So uh, I, I'll keep moving because we, we'll run out of time. One of the things I talked about there is being more, more coherent. Uh, so you're actually a better communicator because you're thinking better on the spot, on the fly, under pressure, etc. But this leads brilliantly to communication because communication is such a leadership skill. That's why we see it, all these books on communication, etc. And you say every word counts. And I, I thought again about as a player, when the coach didn't say good morning to you, when the coach did say good morning to you, when they didn't give you a text, when they communicated, they didn't even tell you you were dropped or you were picked. Yeah. All those, everything matters. Yeah. And it's such, it has such a dramatic effect as how people see you as a coach. And you address a whole chapter on this called Every Word Counts. You've hit the nail on the head with that. I think really what we're talking about is that power dynamic. So again, we're talking about the ultimate leader, the person in the spotlight, the person that people are looking to for guidance. And yeah, you're right. When you don't say something, whatever that is, hello, or you're dropped or whatever it may be, the impact of that it can be far more wide ranging than what you do say. And so uh, I think, again, we need to start to factor those things in. And then th the other portion of it is all communication isn't created equal. So you can write as many books about communication, but what we need to acknowledge is that uh, text message is now a form, emoji use is a form of communication, uh, a text isn't the same as an email, Zoom isn't the same as in person. So there's now all these different delivery methodologies that you need to decide based on the personalities of the team that you have. What do I do in this instance versus this instance? Do I use a smiley face for this person because they need it? That's important now as the leader. And if you don't, if you, if you get your emoji use wrong, you can ruin someone's week, right? And yeah, so it's yeah. so decent. That's what I mean. Every word, every emoji counts yeah, to yeah. that person's life because of the power dynamic and how much they're looking to you for uh, leadership. And actually, as a leader, so in an organization as well, you email the leader. Maybe it's an idea you've had. You're like, I'll pluck up the courage. Email it. Nothing. Like, absolutely kill somebody for the week they'll worry about it or it's something that's really important to them they've emailed you and you don't get 
the word back. And even was, as I say to some of the execs, I coach, even explain to your people your communication styles. I don't get back to emails yeah. within 48 hours because I have so much on my plate. If it's urgent, here's this number or use Slack or something like that really helps people because I often find this and this goes for transformation a lot is if you don't give people a story, they'll create their own story and it's usually negative. It's like we saw that with COVID. Most people's stories were negative. So last one is such an important one. And, you know, you, you said this brilliantly. So it's tactics don't really matter. And you're kind of going, really? You're, you're a coach. Because if you think about people getting to the head coach role, they get there based on technical expertise. They're good coaches. They were skills coaches like Andy Friend, for example, you mentioned. But when they get there, it's a different role. It's about cohesion. It's about bringing people together. It's about making them una voce. It's about singing off the same hymn sheet. Mm -hmm. And that's often a skill set they don't have. So their emotional intelligence, their EQ, all these things are more important than their IQ at this stage. And it's one of the lines I most loved about the whole thing here. I don't know if it's your own term is seam work, not teamwork. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Uh, I I think that encapsulates it the most is the the seams between all of the, the silos and working within those seams and across those seams. Really, it's about moving from the mechanics of coaching leadership into the dynamics because it is, it's, it's bringing groups together. And uh, there's, a, there's a term in soccer called the, the single organism, uh, which is we all move as one, Beautiful. right? And so um, I, I love that not long after I wrote that, uh, Owen Eastwood came out with Belonging. I don't know if you've read Belonging. I haven't read it yet, but he's on my list. Yeah, and so I, I wrote a chapter about Belonging and then his book comes out and, and we've connected over that. And uh, the ability to bring groups of humans from disparate lands and different uh, upbringings and, and methodologies and communication styles and being able to bring them together is certainly a skill. And uh, yeah, it's not one that's often practiced as you're coming up the chain. And that's the most interesting thing is you, this is why I talk about mechanics versus dynamics, is the mechanics often get you to the top, right? You sell the most, you're, you're, you're the best at doing the job. And then all of a sudden it becomes human dynamics becomes your job. And, and that catches a lot of leaders out like, Oh, what is this? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, worth paying attention to as a leader. That is a, a beautiful way to finish today's show, but I, I pulled an, an end quote that I absolutely love. And, uh, I thought we'd dedicate this to Olivier, Natalie, your wife and uh, your friend, Ned, who sadly passed away as well and dedicate this show to him. You said at the end of the book, what ends up crippling head coaches is fear. And here I'm talking to our audience as well. Think about the fear that cripples you from doing what you truly want to do. After all that hard work to get to the top job, it's easier to fall in line do what's been done before and not stand out. There are societal pressures within the game to earn it by accepting the status quo before you're allowed to shake up the system. Show your real personality or begin to innovate. This legacy thinking handcuffs us and stymies progress. Absolutely love that. Great way to finish today's show. What about you? Any of your, your final message for our audience? 
Well, I think that's my final message <laughs> is, uh, you know, again, you've got an opportunity to be yourself and really in terms of like leadership performance is there's, there's an opportunity to take it to the next level by thinking about yourself and taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. Beautiful. Author of The Tough Stuff and Where Others Won't, Cody Royal, thanks for joining us. Mate, great to see you. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com.